True Spirituality, Part 7, Being Fruitful. When a person accepts Christ as Savior, it means that he or she has made a conscious decision about what's most real, what is the very nature of ultimate reality. Even if someone doesn't frame it like that, and most do not, it is that comprehensive. Becoming a Christian involves the willingness to give your life over to following Jesus as a right now existing person. And before even getting to that point, someone must first believe that God exists, that he created the universe, and has the right to rule over it. Then there is hearing the message of and about Jesus Christ, the gospel, which means good news, and thinking it through to the extent that they have consciously decided that it's true. It's not just based upon feeling something, although that can be part of it since we are both thinking and feeling beings, but deciding to embrace what Jesus and the apostles claimed in terms of his identity, his mission, and how that relates to us involves the intellect. Again, we are thinking feeling creatures, and we both think and feel our way through the most important decisions in life, don't we? And something as all-encompassing as acknowledging Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, in other words, King of your life, involves a change in life direction and then submitting to his plans for living. This is nothing short of an all-in proposition that engages the mind and the heart, the heart relating to matters of the will and emotions. But becoming a Christian doesn't always involve the kinds of feelings and experiences that we might describe as brushes with the divine or taking us to a new place in some ecstatic religious state. Does that happen with some on the journey to the decision point? Yes. And many, if not most, who stay on the path following Jesus experience feelings deep within of things such as joy, peace, hope and convictions of conscience that are undeniable and not easily accounted for on the decidedly reductionistic basis of being nothing more than neurological events or brain states. Even many non-religious people are open to something about the universe that is symptomatic of a higher reality of some kind. Christian teaching affirms these intuitions as wired into humanity on the basis of us being created in the image of a personal God with whom we are designed to communicate. It's as if we have a built-in antenna array ever listening for that still small voice. The fall of humanity interrupted the relationship and unaided human reason alone isn't sufficient to bridge the gap. What is needed is the open hands of faith, resulting in a willingness to orient oneself in the direction of following Jesus Christ, his teachings, and the manner of life he exemplified, both of which are contained in the Bible. Recall our earlier discussions of how the Bible teaches that accepting Christ as Savior establishes a new existence for a person. I am immediately in a new relationship with God the Father. God the Father is now my Father. He is Abba, Papa to me. But if this is so, I should be experiencing in this life the Father's fatherliness. When I trust Christ, I also come into a new relationship with God the Son. He is now my vine. I am the branch who cannot survive apart from being connected to him, and he is my bridegroom, the one with whom I am in a close relationship. Now, this raises a question. 
If I, as a branch and as a bride, am not bringing forth the fruit one would expect from being connected to him in this way, then what's wrong? The Apostle Paul challenges the follower of Christ, this in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, to not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. As a Christian, I can yield myself to one or the other as I live day to day. Just because I have accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, I still move about in a fallen world as one who, though forgiven and drawn into relationship with God, still has to deal with weaknesses in myself that are associated with the fall of humanity. Paul continues in Romans chapter 6, verses 14 through 21. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. This passage points out the high calling of putting ourselves by choice under the authority and in the loving arms of God in order for Him to bring forth His fruit through us into the external world. But the warning is there that it is possible, even after becoming a Christian, to put ourselves in positions whereby we're bringing the wrong type of fruit into the world. It is possible as a Christian to be bringing forth the same kind of fruit now as we did before by yielding to our old inclination to put ourselves at the center of all things, just as the original rebel and liar, Satan, has done. Now let's go to the third step in my new relationship with God through Christ once I have accepted him as Savior. I am also now in a new relationship to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, whereby He lives in me as the agent of the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Son in me through God the Spirit. And the fruit of His being present within is clearly laid out in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If I am bringing forth something other than these characteristics that are the fruit of the Spirit, that is the result of living in a way that doesn't reflect His presence within me. I am somehow stifling or quenching what He can produce within and through me, which saddens Him as my divine guest. 
The Bible makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved, and as one now in a new relationship with him, I should be highly motivated to not sadden him who lives within me. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Do not quench the Spirit. When we grieve or sadden him, we push aside the one who is the agent to us of the work of Christ for our present life. On the basis of the finished work of Christ suffering on the cross for us and on the active obedience of Christ, that is, him having kept the law perfectly throughout his life, the fruit of the Holy Spirit outlined in the Galatians passage we just read is there available to us. It is, as the comprehensive set of characteristics, to flow out through us into the external world. This is what should be the norm for those who have accepted Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to exhibit this is not to experience the Christian life that should be considered normal. There is only one reason why this would be the case, and it is because the faith the Bible teaches and calls us into is not being lived out and applied properly. This is to quench the Spirit. When we sin in this sense, we sin twice. We sin in the sin of pushing against God's Spirit within us, which is terrible as it is against the law and character of God, our Father. But at the same time, we sin by omission because we have not raised the empty hands of faith for the gift that is there. To bear the fruit of being connected to the vine, married to the bridegroom that is Christ, and then having his fruit go out through us into the external world. It's important to pause for a moment to clarify that our ongoing experiences of having ups and downs in the Christian life is an inevitability due to the fact that we still have to contend with the remnants of a fallen world all around us and even pushing into our own still vulnerable psyches. We are justified, made right with God, on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross appropriated by our trust in him. So even when we do hit the bumps and potholes along the way or even fall flat on our faces, that doesn't change who and whose we are. Always keep in mind that salvation is a flowing stream of being justified once for all time that sets in motion the process of sanctification that is the ongoing, moment-by-moment living out of that savedness and being transformed slowly but surely into someone more and more like Jesus by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. This is a deeper concept that most have not explored thoroughly. We, as those who have received what Christ purchased for us with his blood on the cross, which are the present and future benefits of salvation, are to actively raise the empty hands of faith in order that the fruit of his spirit within us will flow through us out into the world, giving testament to God's truth and reality. Not just that he exists, but that he is the source of all that is good. He is love. Why does this happen? Why might we not be bringing forth the fruit we should? One reason is because we may have never been taught the meaning of the work of Christ for our present lives. There are five possible ways this manifests. The first could be that the Christian may have been taught how to be justified, forgiven and adopted into God's family by faith, but not the present meaning of Christ's work for him. 
A second way is that he may have been taught to become a Christian through faith, that wholehearted trust, but left there, as though from that point on the Christian life is lived in his own strength. Third, he may have been taught the opposite, that having accepted Christ, it doesn't matter how he lives. The fourth way could be that the Christian may have been taught some kind of second blessing, that the Holy Spirit will arrive in his life in a more special way subsequent to his first becoming a Christian by faith that makes him truly empowered in this life. This the Bible does not teach. The Bible teaches that at the moment you trusted Christ, you were drawn into a new relationship with God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At that point, the Christian lacks nothing. That said, the Bible does teach that the Christian will experience a deepening of that relationship throughout his life, which can very well include more pronounced experiences of the Holy Spirit's work within, on, and through him. But again, this should not be viewed as a second experience altogether. Finally, and perhaps most commonly, he may never have been taught that there is a reality of faith to be acted on consciously after becoming a Christian and experiencing the new birth, being born again. All of this underscores why it is so important to be actively involved in a gathering of believers, a church, that teaches and encourages both reading and applying the Bible's teachings in real, day-to-day, even moment-to-moment life. This involves a firm commitment to the Bible as God's special communication or revelation to humanity that is important to consult daily and to be connected to other Christians doing the same in order to share insights and encourage one another in the endeavor. When a person regularly reads and thinks deeply about the Bible, learning the meaning of the work of Christ in the present life, a new door is open to him. There can be the sense of something almost as new as his conversion, even if he has been a Christian for a long time. It is having a more fully developed and experienced understanding of the meaning of the work of Christ for our present life. And the Bible teaches the importance of doing this, not just as an individually saved person, but also in community with other Jesus followers. However, it is not just knowing the Bible as a set of abstract concepts and doctrines, but making these teachings ours. In the final analysis, it is never doctrine alone that makes the difference, but doctrine taken in, taken hold of, wielded, put to use. This points us again to the parallel doctrines of justification and sanctification. In both, the instrument by which we receive the free gift of God is faith, which believes God as he has given us his promise in the Bible. Recall that the difference between the two is that justification deals with our guilt and is once for all, while sanctification deals with the Christian life as moment by moment. One deals with the guilt of my sin and the other with the power of sin in my life. All of this is by faith. We need to stress again the importance of a proper understanding of what faith is. Christian faith is never faith in faith. Christian faith is never without content. It is never a leap into the dark. Christian faith is believing what God has said, and Christian faith rests upon Christ's finished work on the cross. 
This faith involves more than just an intellectual assent to a set of propositions that are attached to an historical narrative. It is facing a reality of living our day-to-day, moment-by-moment lives in open communion with God and allowing that to shape how we think, speak, and act in all circumstances. So the key is intentionally and actively believing God's promises in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment lives. Consequently, in believing his promises that you are forgiven, adopted, destined for eternity with the Lord, and indwelt right now by his Spirit to empower you to bear fruit, you can then go out and do that today, wherever you are. It's all about the present meaning of the finished work of Christ for the Christian. If you can see that and actually take hold of it with the open hands of faith, everything changes. This is the practice of an active passivity. You as the recipient of the blessings associated with God having saved you, then go out and practice what it is to live in these truths that have a real effect on how you think, speak, and act. And this is not to be done in some mechanical way, as if reading a certain amount of the Bible every day, practicing particular ceremonies or rituals, never missing a church service, or anything else of that nature is the true mark of spirituality or the Christian life. True spirituality can never have merely a mechanical solution. The real solution is to be in personal communion with God and letting Christ's truth flow through me by the agency of the Holy Spirit. It is to believe God, not just when I accept Christ as Savior, but also day after day and the best I can, moment by moment. Christianity teaches that the answer to humanity's fundamental problem is that the central relationship that makes all other relationships most meaningful is that of the creator and the creature, which is restored when I have accepted Christ as my savior and my guilt is gone. When this happens, I am to be in my appointed position, in the proper place and in a personal relationship with God. This is what I was made for in the first place. And when I am functioning properly as creature before the Creator, living by faith in Him and allowing His very Spirit to work within, on, and through me, all the other dimensions of and relationships in my life fall into place. This is the true Christian life. This is true spirituality. Spirituality.